Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to Sentimental Garbage Christmas Special. Usually, this time of year, you'd be in your childhood bedroom rereading the books that got you through primary school. This year, a lot of us can't go home for Christmas, but there's still every reason to revisit the books that made life better when you were nine. And it might make life better now. And my name is the very hungry caterpillar, Caroline Donahue. Joining me today is Bed and Breakfast star, Ella Risbridger. Hi. Glad to be Hi. in my adult bedroom, talking to you in your adult sitting room. <laughs> very grown up. Amazing that we pay rent and, um, and uh, do all the things that are expected of us. And yet we are still very much in the secret garden at all times. At all times. I mean, I think that's why... That's why this seemed like such a fun idea for the Christmas special. Is... I think it's why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, so. yeah, you and I connected over a variety of things early on in our friendship. And, like, if you think about it, The Secret Garden is not, like, that insane a thing to connect over. Like, it's a very well-read book. But I remember feeling like you and I were the only ones who got it. And in particular, the only ones who got how sexy it was. <laughs> the Secret Garden is a very sexy book. And I, I think in some ways that's... That's why this is an excellent sentimental garbage, because there's this kind of the deep sexiness of things you understand, and like that nine-year-old thing of being like, there is a powerful magic here, and I would die for Dickon. <laughs> I mean, Frances Hodgson Burnett knew what she was doing well, when she named the, it that. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that she's a romance author. Frances Hodgson Burnett. Mm is a romance author who did a few children's books. It's just that her children's books have stood the test of time, whereas her grown-up romance novels are now very dated and no one reads them. That's so interesting. I had no idea. But you can that. tell, right? Like, the structure of The Secret Garden is very it's much a love like, triangle. It's a love triangle between, like, he's reliable and he's rich and he's not... But he's kind of pale and he needs her, which is a very sexy thing. Or he's robust and handsome and the animals talk to him, but he doesn't need her and he'll never need her. Like, do you want to be the helper? Do you want to be the helpee? It is, it is like the story of all women and their first two boyfriends. Whatever, and whatever order, whatever order those boyfriends come will uh, shape the rest of your life forever. <laughs> if you start off with the nature boy who will never truly need you the way you need him, it'll shape you in one direction. And if you start off with the needy, pale, slightly annoying, slightly entitled, but <laughs> loves you beyond measure and would move worlds to please you, your life goes in a slightly different direction. <laughs> Look, the thing is, I want to be a Dickon girl. I am. I believe myself to be. And oh, yet. And yeah, yet. Yeah. But yeah. The, like, the, rule for, the rule for straight females, or, or, or just women who you know, date men a lot of the time, is that you break the heart of a Colin, you're brokenhearted by the Dickens. What a soundbite. <laughs> I do think that men are more nuanced than that, and there are more shades of people Look, among you men. And I but... have both, you and I have both recently been reprimanded for saying too often, all men are this, or this is the thing about men. They're all like this character from a book. I would say, your boyfriend and mine have both been like, huh? Do you have to keep saying that all men do this? Yeah. I, just, Nonetheless... Just, just very, very gently being like, we don't think it's fair that you've noticed a vaguely similar trait about both of us and therefore putting us in a thing of all men. And we're like, well, don't care. I mean... Uh, anyway, I see you're pouring yourself another shot of Deserano, so I can tell this is going great places. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. I think it's worth noting that I am, as I say, I'm in bed in my dressing gown with a bottle of Amaretto. Which um, 
Ella looks for the, for the listeners. Ella looks like a celebrity who's sort of recently been disgraced and has to apologize from the comfort of their home and is like trying to appear as vulnerable and as beautiful as possible as they do it. Oh my god, put hook it into my veins. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm look. so sorry for what I said, but look, I'm just a person with soft flesh and a lovely dressing gown. It's a really nice dressing gown. It was just a big extravagance to have a white company dressing gown, but uh I've really got my money's worth. I know this isn't a book, but you know, this is how the Christmas special tends to go, which is, I have two glasses of wine and uh, talk about shit Things for get hours. Silly. <laughs> Getting silly I with Ella and Caroline. In my episode notes, I have general starting points under a headline, and as if we like needed a general starting point. Um, but one of the starting points I wanted to start from is that um, throughout our long friendship, you and I have like often had these moments where like we've been like, oh, you know, oh, you were reading that when you were nine. I was reading this. And then we kind of will get quite comfortable with the idea that because we grew up in different countries, we read somewhat different things. And then sometimes they'll intertwine in the weirdest of places with books that not that many people have read. And it will just be like a second honeymoon for us <laughs> when that happens. I would say that is, those are the deep honeymoons of our relationship. That's when the men become profoundly irrelevant, is when, yeah. like when we found out that we both loved Anastasia Kropnik. Yes, and Anastasia, the dead um, Russian royal, but you know, that's a kind of a, a love for all young girls, I think. Do you remember when we were going to start a band and our first album was going to be called Justice for Anna Anderson? Oh my God. That was, that was a great album title. Oh, for some reason I had completely blotted that out. I just feel that the people... If you too feel that there should be justice for Anna Anderson, who, why couldn't they just let her be the princess? We all want Anastasia not to be dead. Um, you're going to cut this, I know this, because not everyone knows who Anna Anderson is. So let's move on. If you were the right kind of eight-year-old girl, you knew who Anna Anderson was. But let us move on, because I want to... I would say that, like... I find this very, very interesting because as, as authors, I'm sure you get this lot too. And particularly as this next year coming up is going to be an interesting one for both of us because my first young adult book is coming out and your first children's book is coming out. So we're like, you know, after having these careers in this industry, we're both kind of pivoting to, write, to writing for younger audiences and we're kind of have the incumbent responsibilities that come with that. And you get asked more yeah. like, oh, what kind of books did you grow up on? And I find myself thinking like, Okay, most of the books that I grew up on are ones that were like, you know, incredible books by Irish publishers that were mostly historical fiction. Like, were mostly about the famine, the workhouses, emigration. (laughs) I grew up on a series of children's books. They were like informative, fictional, historical children's books called like My Story. And they pretended to be diaries (laughs) and letters Diaries and sometimes letters from, like, children or young teens in various historical periods. There was one I was obsessed with in the late Victorian era from a girl called maybe Alice who wanted to get into making movies. Just a plucky gal in Paris. Um, And she wrote these diaries. I'm I'm laughing so much because I remember that this was one of the times when we intertwined our our readings Uh and we realised... We both read Eva de Puebla's book of my stories. <laughs> Eva de Puebla, who was Mary Tudor, with Catherine of Aragon's no, hand. Catherine of Aragon's handmaiden, supposedly. And because they had to on the cover, it was like, my story, Catherine of Aragon's handmaiden, Eva de Puebla, and had this sort of like, it you felt know, old fashioned woodcut thing. It was like, oh, obviously this is true. Obviously this is a real 13 year old girl's diary from when she was the handmaiden to Catherine of Aragon. And I just bought it hook, line and fucking sinker. But there was a whole series and I... Do you know what? This is really devastating. This is the first time... The first time I realised that adults could, like, be profoundly wrong. Okay. Because I had realised that they weren't real and some adult, I don't remember who it was, said to me, it's absolutely amazing. They've managed to get these historians and they've managed to find all these diaries and the person who was talking to me was not selling me a line. They believed it. And I remember thinking... I can't be the one to disillusion you because I am nine years old. <laughs> this will only I will be very be... kind here. And honestly, and thinking, and I think for me, it was one of my first tastes of feeling like a grown-up in a grown-up conversation and thinking, I'm not going to tell you because it would be humiliating for you to find this out from a nine-year-old. 
Do you think that, like, the era that we were growing up in was... Was historical fiction for children just huge then? Or did we, were we just kind of the kind of kids that gravitated towards it? Well, I don't know, because um, now you've got things like Robin Stevens' Wells and Wong Mysteries, which are obviously set in the 30s, and, you know, I'm really only kind of mystery-centric, so I think of people... I think of things like the Sinclair Department Store Mysteries. And so there's lots I can think of that are set now. But what we had, and I don't know if it's the same, is this sense of being in very strongly educated about things through our fiction. Did you read Witch Child by Celia Rees? No, I remember seeing it a lot. For some reason, it was one of those things that you have when you're like, I feel like this is catering too much to my interests and therefore I'm cynical about it because I feel like they know what I think I want, you know? Caro, you would love it. I, I can't I stress I to you enough. Now. There are letters in an old quilt that someone finds now and they turn out to be the diaries of someone who not only was being tormented for being a witch, but was a witch. Ooh. And she's trying to pretend that she's not a witch, but also the people need her for their healing. And she doesn't even realise she's a witch. She just thinks she's like gathering, you know, herbs. But that makes her a witch because she's so clever. Anyway, I vividly remember not so much the plot of that book, but the texture of that book. For me, Witch Child is a classic. I would read this if I were going home for Christmas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like Witch Child, from what I remember of it, I remember the cover really well. The kind of sepia cover, the long curly hair. Yeah, and um, the big was, eyes. Like, yeah. Big dark eyes. Like, quite scratchy um, type on the front. Oh, big time. Yeah. Yeah. And for some reason... And I don't know, because I was really into, you know, I think, because I think it, was, it wasn't necessarily kid. It could have been like young, young adult, like know, sort of 12 to 13 sort of age crap, maybe. I think yes. that's what it was aimed at. And that I think I was at that point getting very into Wicca. <laughs> and I thought anything that like thought it knew more than me about something and I knew almost nothing was like beneath me. Do you know that weird mood that you get into? Totally. And I think this is where because I'm a couple of years younger than you, I think when it came out, I was probably 10. Mm, mm, and okay, 10 is a good age to read books that are for 14-year-olds. Oh, it's the best. I think that's the most fascinating thing to me about everything sort of aimed at young people, but also young women, because it happens with magazines as well, in particular young women. Totally. Like, you, girls are always preparing themselves for the next stage of girlhood. They always think they can cram to get ahead of the next stage. You read Ms. when you're seven and you read just sugar when you're 10 and then you read just 17 when you're 12 yeah and you read more magazine when you're 15 maybe and you sort of like hide it that was our like fhm i think i mean it was mine <laughs> do you know what i remember i remember reading magazines aimed squarely at adult women but at older adults magazines i'd never read now like yeah. oh, red yeah. or something like that something Something where the concerns in the magazine were that of a 45-year-old woman. And oh, completely, yeah. Like, And just magazines that no one in their 20s and 30s would really go for so much, but magazines definitely that were aimed at people who had houses and kids and disposable income and being like, oh yeah, I'm 14 and standing in the newsagent. <laughs> but I do remember feeling this sense, when, like, because I had an older sister and my mum was pretty young, um, she there was a lot of magazines just floating around the house and I remember thinking like I am going to be so ready to be great at sex when the time comes because <laughs> <laughs> I was reading those like 99 ways to please your man articles so voraciously they I mean truly staggering every week so many new ways to please a man and so few of them I have employed in adult life Oh my god, which of those ones do you like is like carved into your brain because I think everyone has one they've retained my one was about pleasing your circumcised partner because they had to go into sort of strata after a while. And they were like, oh, some circumcised men, they lack the sensitivity on the head of their penis. No. Um, <laughs> to, to circumvent this, try rubbing chili powder. No. On the area. Yes. Like to really spice up your sex life. It was. And I remember thinking like, ooh, good plan. So the chilli powder is going there. So there, and then you're in pain. Everyone's in pain. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's I, in pain. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I remember the donut one very vividly. 
The donut one? What, is that someone getting your boyfriend to have sex with a donut or something? Yeah, and then you eat it off. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> oh, no! I feel like I am 12. <laughs> I know! What's the worst thing you ever learned from Cosmo? Or not Cosmo. Uh, Cosmo... I only remember seeing, like, a couple of Cosmos. I don't remember what magazines these were. I remember reading a lot of... A lot it sounds of like magazines. It, like it was like good housekeeping or something that you were reading. It was which actually, good. you know what, tracks. <laughs> it definitely wasn't good housekeeping. Good housekeeping did not have sex tips, does it? I don't think so. I don't know. Magazines have gone through a hell of a ride in the last 20 years. We should Maybe. probably move back on to books. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting. It's all of a piece, isn't it? It's the same... It's the kind of things that you read when you're not... You're not really buying your own media. That's why you come back to these children's books when you're at your parents' house. And it's the same reason as a teenager you're reading these magazines when you're babysitting or you're, like, Mm. waiting for your mum at the hairdresser or whatever. Like, you spend so much time as a kid and as a teen waiting. And that's been the weird thing about this year, I guess, is this feeling of, well, someone's going to tell me what I'm allowed to do and I might push it a bit, but then someone might yell at me. That is so true. And that is something that we've come back to so many times when we've done like our remote podcasting, which is that like, it does feel like that we're all just 15 in our bedrooms again. And every now and then we'll have a strop and like, go outside and and meet someone for a drink and then we'll get punished for two months. (laughs) (laughs) We have all been grounded again. We all went out for one drink. And the thing is, there's no other time in your adult life where you can be like, I went to the pub once, I had one drink, and then I came home. It's like, I don't care. You shouldn't have gone to the pub, should you? You know that. Now go to your room and think about what you've done until we say you can come down. The whole country just has like one of those like wildly unpredictable, frightening parents where it's like sometimes they're super chill and we're all going to Disneyland and like everyone gets an ice cream and like, oh, you dropped your ice cream. Here's another one. And then sometimes, you know, they just go mental and you have no idea what to predict and you're just so scared all the time. (laughs) I feel exactly like that. So scared all the time, but sometimes nice, sometimes allowed to go for a walk with more than one per... per- what a year. What a year what that a my year. great joy is being like, perhaps soon they'll let us go for a walk with two of us again. For me, possibly because of that feeling, um, I have spent a lot of this year... I haven't really read that much romance or commercial women's fiction off my own back this year, but I've read a lot of kids' books. Like, I've read a lot of Diana Wynne-Jones... I read, like, Tom's Midnight Garden for the first time since I was, like, 10. And, like, what what I really think about is it's these kids' books that really just work as novels about children that could be read by anyone at any age and are just, like, beautifully crafted... Totally. ...exquisite baubles, you know? Well, what was really interesting to me is I have a lot of these books on my Kindle, which is because I feel bad about buying them in hard copy when I know I have them in hard copy at my parents' house, but I need yeah. to read them now. And what was interesting to me is I had clearly bought a huge batch of them when John was in hospital. John, for those of you mm-hmm. who don't know, is my late partner who died, and he spent a lot of time in hospital before he died. And there was this huge... I was flicking through my Kindle trying to find them, and there's just this huge backlog of everything Diana Wynne jones has ever written, and Tom's Midnight Garden, and a book called Moondial, and so much Noel Stretfield, which is one of those weird gaps, right? You don't have any Noel... Stretfield no, a, a lot of those, like, I've never read Narnia, I've never read Noel Stretfield, I um, I just, it's like those Englishy books, I think because there was such a push for Irish uh, literature when I was young, and I'm glad there was, that a lot of those things just skipped me by. Yeah, I mean, I love them. Like, Noel Stretfield, I think, is probably my deepest comfort reading. There's something in the rhythm of her sentences which nobody else has been able to emulate. Or possibly... I only think that because I know them so well. In the same Mm. way that, for me, there is no romance novel that touches Jill Mansell that hits that same comforting spot. And I think probably that's because she was the the first romance novel I read and therefore the rhythm of Jill Mansell's particular cadences are what hit that comfort spot for me, which is how I feel about Noel Stretfield, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that there's a kind of peculiarity to the texture of her writing, a peculiar kind of precision, which I get from that and I get from Eva Ibbotson as well. And I wish I could convey to you how soothing they are to me, but I think maybe you had to start reading them when you were six. 
I definitely do get it. And like whenever I pick those books up, I do. I'm like, oh, this is lovely. And there are there are books that are like that that I have since sort of um, just adopted and been like, oh, this is gorgeous. Like, um, I mean, like the first podcast of Sentimental Garbage, which was The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets, was very that sort of like very Englishy, very eccentricy, slightly Mitfordy, but sort of cozier and not as acerbic. Um, that sort of tone. But I think like. I'm just I'm I'm very fucking obstinate sometimes and the more these things get pushed on me particularly for some reason Dodie Smith the more I'm just a bit like leave me alone you british wanker <laughs> I mean I was about to say Dodie Smith, I captured the castle and the poisonwood bible Yeah uh, I think two books I've spent most of the last decade saying Caroline you will love it <laughs> You will love it. And I I, I mean, know, the Poisonwood Bible is one of my greatest successes of all time. Oh my God, the best, the best. The thing I think of my copy is obviously my parents' copy and I have dropped it in the bath and I've dinged it around. But I love that book. I love that book so much. But I can't buy it not on Kindle because I already have it. I have mm. my real copy, but it's at my parents' house. So interesting, that's a book I read whenever I go back to my parents. And I guess also for Noel Stratfield for me ballet shoes and also a vicarage family which is a kind of thinly fictionalized autobiography they're both about big groups of sisters and about finding it tricky to have siblings which is something you don't really get so much in adult books when you get sisters in adult books i think it tends to be more like someone has died there is a will we all have mm. to it's all a coming together whereas i don't know about your family when my family come together the thing I find hardest is how little has changed since we were, you know, six, eight, yeah, yeah. six, eight, eleven, and thirteen. Yeah, having another drink um, now, guys. That's an interesting one, actually, because I always like rejected when I was a kid. Not even rejected consciously, but like things like the Famous Five and the Secret Seven and anything that was about groups or families. Because I o I only ever wanted to read about girls alone because I just felt so overshadowed all the time and so you know I was, I'm the youngest so I'm sort of constantly even I just constantly felt left out constantly felt left behind and that's not to say that I was like abused or had cruel siblings it's just the way of the world for young siblings um, and I just always wanted like I loved stories about only children who had like very deep relationships with their parents. Um, like I was always like every time me and my mom would like drive anywhere that was like further than like a 20 mile radius from our house I would just try and beg her that we could leave them all behind and it would just be me and her in the open road no oh my. constantly Cara, Cara, I was that's absolutely I was, I was I was just anything about yeah I mean whereas, that's why orphans are so huge right whereas I'm such an oldest sibling it would never ever have occurred to me the prospect of leaving my sisters behind. It, it never occurred to me. My sisters are part of everything I do and am. And I think perhaps that's to do with only having sisters. And I don't know. It would never have occurred to me to say we could leave them all behind. I'm going to have to ask my youngest sister now whether she ever like was like... <laughs> I would be very interested in what she has to say. And like definitely one of those kind of only child although she's not technically an only child because she does get a brother um fantasy books was always Anastasia Krupnik oh my god can we talk about Anastasia Krupnik's parents marriage oh that the is most, the real story the most important marriage in all of fiction oh my the god. one that's the one to aim for and any anyone listening who hasn't heard of Anastasia Krupnik which were a, a series of books that came out in the 80s written by Lois Lowry um, and are about a 10 year old, 10 to 13 year old girl just living her life in Boston and having a time. But she, there is so much of the parents' relationship in it. And anybody who got married this year, anybody who had a kid this year, anybody who's like really settling down for a lifetime of love and commitment with their partner, this is the only marriage guide you need. Like, because they're so sort of, they're so artsy, they're so liberal, they're so like, but they're also not this dreamy, like, unattainable, like, impossibly woke family. They're just like... Do you remember like, when she opens, the mum so opens a beer and it's tired? And the mum is just like a painter and she just like cracks open this beer oh. and she's got paint on her nose. And the dad is just like, yeah, paint on your nose. And it's just like, 
Oh, and it's in the background of this children's book, right? The story is not Anastasia's parents' marriage. No. But yet... Which is perfect. It is a perfect marriage because they just really love each other and things are not easy and they argue. And there's this whole bit, do you remember, about Annie? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's a whole bit about the dad's significant ex to whom his first book is dedicated and the mum is constantly bringing it up. It's in chapter one of the first book. To the point where you would think the arc of the series was like, this man leaves his family for his former girlfriend and this is how the girl is going to be traumatised by it. But no, it's just like a funny like footnote of their lives that he's written four books of poetry, one, the first of which he hates, which is very fitting. The first of which he hates and he never talks about it. And she's like, well, why don't you just take it down from the shelf? And he's like, shut up. Um, the second one is dedicated to Annie. The third one is dedicated to his current wife. And the fourth one is dedicated to Anastasia. And it's also, also, the fourth one, which is dedicated to Anastasia, his only child, is called Bittersweet. Which I'm like, what does that mean, Myron? <laughs> Myron Krupnik. Myron Krupnik is a very sexy man. And Annie, and I forget the mum's name. Uh, Kathy Hel- or something, yeah. Helen? Yeah. Kathy? Oh, and, I don't know. A name like that. Name. Yes, but I do want to kind of say at this juncture that one of the most nicest things anyone's ever done for me is when... John was in hospital and everything was really dreadful and I just came back to your house and you had just bought me a pair and it was Christmas three years ago. Christmas, the real worst Christmas anyone's ever had. You know, my boyfriend was dying of a mysterious disease. He had to have brain surgery. Uh, It was all real bad. Emergency brain surgery, lots of comas, lots of units. Very bad time. Anyway, I just got back to Caroline's house where I was temporarily living a lot of the time and she Mm -hmm. had bought me some pyjamas with glittery penguins and polar bears on and she had just bought also a box set of Anastasia Krupnik books and she had just put the pyjamas and the box set on the pillow in her spare room and she was like have a shower go to bed and honestly if any of you have a friend going through immense personal trauma purchasing clean large pyjamas patterned with something they were so they were so large as well they were like a flannel hug from a large they were man. just it was so large good. flannel pajamas, and I just had a shower and got into these brand new pajamas. And she changed the sheets, and I just got into clean pajamas and clean sheets and read all of Anastasia Krupnik on Christmas Eve. And uh, anyway, do that exact thing. Like, don't oh. miss a step. It was probably the mo- the thing that got me through that terrible year. Oh, oh See, Christmas. That's the thing. So we're recording this um, on Zoom on the 22nd, hoping to have it out on Christmas Eve. Um, And, you know, no one's looking forward to Christmas. No one... The people who have managed to be with their family feel guilty and weird about it. The people who aren't with their family feel guilty and weird about it. Like, no one feels good. No one's looking forward to it. But I know, particularly from that Christmas, Christmas 2017, that sometimes out of the worst times in your life, you can have the most, like, dizzyingly joyful moments and like I remember most of that Christmas as being really nice even though it was horrible what's funny is the bits I actually remember from that Christmas and maybe this is a useful thing to actually talk about this year even though it's not strictly about books is I was in hospital with my then boyfriend who was in a kind of coma you know the kind of I don't know if you know they kind of come around and they measure you for being in a coma and you know, he was kind of conscious. He didn't really know who anyone was, but not really there. And so I'd been in hospital doing that all day, and it was bad. And I barely remember any of it. I literally hazy, hazy, hazy. And then I got a taxi back to your house at, like, 10. And you and our friend Harry were drinking... Mm, I remember this so well, yeah. Drinking cocktails you had invented by putting a bottle of gin and a jar of jam in the blender. <laughs> And it was the yeah. first Christmas we got really into... Ta- it was the first time we'd ever got really into tarot. You had mm-hmm. given me some tarot cards. I had given you some tarot cards. I think coincidentally? Or a book on... No, Gavin gave me some tarot cards. And you gave me tarot cards, I think. Yeah. yeah and yeah, we just that. sat around trying to predict this impossible future, which really, for both of us in some ways, had narrowed right down to... you know, this world where your dear friend and this person I love very much, this person we both love very much, was going to die. Mm. And our world had become so small and we just sat around drinking these cocktails, 
telling the future, which in every telling was like this exciting world that we could have. And mm. I remember that. And I remember Gav's dad offering me a lift to the hospital. And I remember so many things from that year that were just like Anastasia Krupnik and pyjamas and cocktails and yeah. doing tarot cards in the middle of the night, even though it was clear that the future was not going to be fantastic. The future, at the very least, was going to involve some significant trauma to everyone involved. And, yeah, it was very loving. It was very well, loving we... and very nice. And out of that extremely horrible time came this these very beautiful set of memories. So, you know. And I think, I, I truly do think, and I like I know it's been a a hard year for everybody it's been harder for others than it has been for some and and all of that and like but I do think that almost everyone is going to look back on this with some degree of like if not necessarily nostalgia but like they're gonna have those like sugary plum memories that are like oh that was beautiful and it was beautiful because everything was so hard and I do think that we will think of of this time in in time as being like Wow, that was a moment where the majority of the population really thought about the most vulnerable people in society in everything think, they did. I think so. And a time where there was this forced necessity to kind of consider, what is it that I really want? Is this person, how important is this person to me? How can I make it work? What is the best way to maintain this kind of loving connection? Which sounds mm. very trite and hokey, but like, I don't know. I was talking to my mum yesterday. So my parents put themselves into incredibly strict isolation so that they could literally, like, they completely quarantined, did the whole thing, so that they could see my grandparents who haven't touched anybody since, well, since March. My grandparents who are vulnerable and are shielding. And my mum has ended up going for a lot of walks with my grandpa and she was just saying that without this virus... She would never, at this point in her life, had three weeks where she was... Her main activity, the main thing she was allowed to do every day, was take long walks with her dad and talk. Mm. And that would never have happened in the course of ordinary things. And my mum... You know, my mum has not seen... I've not seen my mum in a year. You know, she's not seen most of her children for a year. She's had a lot of trouble, like, being in the wrong country or trying to make sure she's got somewhere to be. It's been a tricky one. And yet there are these upsides. And I think there are upsides to this in the same way that there were upsides to John dying, which is a funny Mm. thing to say and a strange thing to say. And I think I feel allowed to say it because a terrible thing happened to me. My boyfriend died when I was 25 and my entire life and future that I had imagined for myself essentially disappeared. And it wasn't like a nice dying either. It was very horrible and full of emotional and practical complications. And there were huge upsides. Would you and I be as close as we are if we hadn't had to spend all that time sleeping in each other's beds? Yeah, I don't know. I think we would still be very good friends, but I don't know if it would be the same... That's a particular kind of bone-deep friendship that comes from that kind of trauma. There's a thing that comes with having... with surviving things. A kind of resilience and sense of... for me at least, a sense of trying to find the joy where it can be found. And probably that is a thing that links, I think, a lot of these children's books together. This Mm -hmm. is a segue. Um, Because if we look at something like, you know, books we've kind of said we'd like to talk about here, Goodnight Mr. Tom, Tom's Midnight Garden, Miss Happiness and Miss Flower. Oh, yeah. They're all about... Let's get back into them. They're all about making the best of things. You know, Tom's Midnight Garden starts with someone having to lovely Tom, he has to miss so much of his summer holiday staying with his aunt and uncle who are boring in a flat which is boring, far away which is boring and he's not even allowed to be with his twin brother and he can't even stay at home and he's so bored and he ends up with this because like because he's in quarantine because he's in because he's in quarantine and he can't see his parents and he can't see his brother and he can't do because his brother has measles his brother has measles but also he has to go away yeah yeah and it's so interesting to me as well that particularly this kind of era of children's books, I'm like, kind of the you know sixties to the eighties, they're so concerned with. Maybe this is part of books that I just gravitated towards, or maybe this was just a trend of like children being sent away to live somewhere else. 
So Miss Happiness and Miss Flower, which is one of my favourite kids' books of all time, um, starts with a girl. It's it's kind of a similar Secret Garden situation. Like she was raised in India. You know, it's no longer appropriate for her father just to raise her. She kind of needs to have the good English girl, school girl upbringing. She's sent to live with her aunt. Everyone's nice to her, but she's so on her own. And then she gets sent these little Japanese dolls. And she, she even though she is so bad at recognizing her own needs in that moment through all her thick like haze of loneliness which you can see in this is like these Japanese dolls need a Japanese home and she just the entire book is just about her researching how to make a Japanese home and then enlisting the various people in her life to make it for her and her just like being able to find this new home while making a home for something that's smaller and more vulnerable than she is. And she's the smallest, most vulnerable person in the world. It's the most beautiful book. No, no. And I, I think... But, yeah, what we're, what links so many of these children's books is this sense of powerlessness. I mean, if we talk about something like Diana Wynne-Jones's Charmed Life, I mean, I mentioned Diana mm-hmm. Wynne-Jones as something that I bought all of when John was really ill... Um, it starts with Cat Champ being sent away. His parents die, and he and his yeah. horrible bitch sister get sent away to live in a castle. They I'm go through obsessed various- with that. So, so Diana Wynne Jones is one of these authors who no one ever showed to me when I was a kid. I don't know how that happened because I would have loved her. But I've only discovered in the last few years, particularly with Fire and Hemlock, which at some point I'll do a full episode on. But um, then when I read Charmed Life a few months... Yeah, and I, and I always think that like any book that was written in the 70s for 8 to 12 year olds is probably best read by like 15 and up now just because there's a complexity and a richness and like an expectancy from the reading level that like I wouldn't be comfortable giving my nine-year-old niece this book. But anyway... Um, wouldn't you? I think because it was no, so I, just don't, I don't think her reading is there, unfortunately. But do you not think that part of reading is part of these the the magic of these children's books is things you don't quite understand at the time i think for me part of what i loved about them as a kid was this sense of like i am being trusted with some grown-up information the thing that made it an appropriate book for me at that time was feeling like the thing that made it exciting to me and intoxicating to me was this idea that there is more there is more here no i I completely agree with you and i definitely had that thing of like that, that that sort of beautiful and very sweet thing of learning a word from a book and then saying it and then realising you got it wrong or pronounced it wrong or you don't really know the meaning. And, it's you funny. Know, and, and did you read Series of Unfortunate Events? Yes, of course. I was obsessed with them. Of course you them. did. Um, of course you did. You, your first fan letter to Lemony Snicket asking if you can be his detective oh assistant. <laughs> Literally, the first email I ever wrote in my entire life was to... Daniel Handler, i.e. Lemony Snicket, who I now follow on Instagram, um, asking him if I could be his assistant. And by assistant, I do not mean writer's assistant. I mean assistant to his detective work in tracking down the Baudelaire's. What I really loved was the was when they would explain the words, a word which here mm. means. And I don't know, yeah. having just written a kid's book, I really wanted to... So I have this kid who knows a lot of words. He loves words. It's his thing. And... One of the things that I wanted to do as a kind of little nod to the Baudelaire's was have him say words that are very long and explain how to pronounce them and explain what they mean. In that mm. way that kids who do know a lot want to explain to other people because yeah. half the thrill for me as a kid was being like, here's an exciting thing. There are still words I can't say right because I read them wrong. Yeah, yeah, totally. It happens to um, me not infrequently that I'll be saying something and I'll be like, sorry, what do you mean? Do you mean naive? Right. Naive. Yeah. (laughs) And I think one of the things about having written, been writing Kidlet, and particularly Kidlet that I hope is kind of this feeling of both comforting and soothing while being also quite strange and full of these things that are a little bit unsettling, is you realise kind of what a rich seam you're drawing from. I would say everything to me in the way I was writing this felt like I was pulling from a little bit from Michelle Magorian with Tom's Midnight Garden and no Michelle Magorian Philippa Pierce with that one what did Michelle Magorian write that I'm thinking of I don't know I don't remember her 
Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. So a little bit from like this Goodnight Mr. Tom and this tone, this tone that I think most children's literature I love takes, that's kind of elegiac, this tone that kind of seems to really miss something. I, I know exactly what you mean, and particularly with Tom in like, Tom's in my garden and I think with Charmed Life as well, is that there's this sense, and with Miss Happiness, is um, there's this like gaps between the sentences where all this pain is that I don't think I totally picked up on when I was a kid, but when I read back as an adult, there's these sort of like spaces in knowledge and sort of moments from the narration where you think, oh, this author is extremely aware that they're writing about a deeply lonely, small, vulnerable, you know, person who... And they're never explicitly saying it. I mean, they do say, like, such and such was feeling very lonely, but it's not those moments. It's those kind of deeper, blanker, harder moments that kind of go unremarked upon, but are still very much exist. It's almost like poetry that way in all this space. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yes. Did you ever read a book called Back Home, which is by Michelle McGorion, who wrote Goodnight, Mr. Tom? Oh, I, have, I haven't read it, but I know the cover very well. I know exactly what you're talking about. Car, you must read it. You will love it. She is an English girl who was sent away to America at the start of the war and now the war is over and she's come back. Mm-hmm. And she was sent away when she was 10 and when she was 9 and now she's 14. And she's got developed an American accent and she's not been back. And she is used to things like bobby socks and hairpins and her mother is so thrilled to see her and she's just basically like, uh-huh, you're a stranger. Yeah. And the milk is all horrible because it's all UHT or evaporated or whatever. And she's like, where is the real milk like we have back home? Oh, because she's coming back to rationing and stuff. Yeah, yeah. and everyone's like, back home? You are home? And she's like, yeah, but what about my nice American family with whom I've lived from 9 to 14? Mm. And she's just back in rationing Britain where the war's ended. And everyone's really jubilant and she is not. She is not happy at all because... Why would she be? Yeah. She didn't want to be sent away in the first place, but then she was there for five years, which when you're a kid is the longest time you can imagine being away. But anyway, the reason I thought of Back Home is because it's full of this sense of loss and longing. And I think children feel loss very keenly. And when you are sad, there is something very comforting about a book that acknowledges your loss without trying to make a metaphor out of it. Yeah. There's no sense of like, and my pain was in fact a generation's pain, and here it is rendered into a metaphor. It's just like, <sighs> Willie Beach was quite lonely because he didn't have any friends. 
And you're like, yes, I am quite lonely because I don't have any friends. And then you get the kind of spaces to feel your feelings. Good children's literature, I think, lets you feel your feelings without overwriting them. Yeah. All I know is that for me, the defining quality of good children's books is that sense of loss. Like, even as well, the... um one of those books that like you and I really connected over was Stargirl um, which is still an absolutely beautiful novel and I really recommend people read it and I think people will recognise the cover a lot as well of um, the sort of this hot pink with the little matchstick girl with the star over it but that is a book you know about a young boy who you know falls in love with the sort of class kooky girl and she's just she's genuinely extremely odd and then through his own sort of fumbling of the situation and his own sort of failure to recognise her specialness over everyone else's averageness, loses her forever. And that's what, that's the end that we begin from. He lost her and he betrayed her because he didn't have the courage to do it right. But also, who among us would? She's a weirdo. And sometimes people are like, she's a fun weirdo. But then ultimately they're like, meh, she's a weirdo. You know the bit where she pretends that the hot seat is really hot and it's funny and he's like I can't laugh because if I laugh they'll know that I think she's funny and I think as well what's so great about Stargirl is that like they is that does that really great thing that in particular American teen novels can do and American teen sort of ephemera because their high schools are so huge that they do make them seem like ecosystems. Like they have a TV show in their high school. They have all these different departments and cliques and everyone's kind of familiar with that American thing. But it really makes it seem like an entire society with strata and with substance. And reading that book back as an adult, which I did this year and so did you, um, it really made me think of it as a sort of a metaphor for female celebrity and female notoriety and what happens when women become famous which is we decide we like their eccentricities and then we decide that we hate them like there's like I mean it's not the same thing but there's a sort of you see with any kind of woman who's come to any kind of notoriety from like your Lena Dunham's to your Jennifer Lawrence's to your whatever there there comes a moment where we all sort of come together and just say like mm, we're done with this now and we're gonna tell her and that's what Stargirl is. And I I think that sense of we're done and we're going to tell her, is that sense of something being over is what permeates these books. Stargirl begins yeah. with, I'm going to tell you about this thing that is lost to me and this world that is lost to me. And I think Tom's Midnight Garden... I mean, is there anything... I don't, I don't think there is a book more heartbreaking, really... Than, than the ending of Tom's Midnight Garden. He's a little boy and she's old. And they yeah. hug and they get this one moment of existing in the same world. And she had to grow up and he didn't grow up. And it's just it's, devastating. It's, it's awful. And like, so the older, the, the, the further into this profession I go, the better I get. At, and I don't even know if I'm ever accurate when I when I get these things of like knowing where the editor had had a quick word or whether, when they had a quick phone call. And I think the quick word in terms of Tom's Midnight Garden was the moment where at the very end they had this heartbreaking moment where they have this hug. And oh God, and like the end says something like, oh, and she looked like just a little, oh, she looked just like a little girl. Oh God, that that really caught me by surprise. That just like, really kind of ganged up on me out of nowhere. I was like, "Fuck!" She's describing it. It's again. It's another level of removal because the aunt yeah. is telling the uncle later, and he says, "And Tom hugged her for all the world as if she was another little girl. She was a little girl." And like, oh, it, it's that. Just a quick aside. It reminded me of this thing I heard about Paul McCartney. Perhaps it. I think it was maybe on the Adam Buxton podcast where he said when he's playing live and there's like these 70 year old ladies there and he says, you know, you know, give us a Beatles scream and they can still do it. And it's that thing of like, those people never go away. Like we're always the same person that we were when we were very young and we just, we just build things on top of it, you know? 
Anyway, but sorry, the, sorry, what I meant to say about Tom's Midnight Garden originally was that the quick word I think Philippa Pierce's um, editor had with her was when she added this little addendum of like, oh, and his brother is going to come next summer and he, and he's going to be your friend and he's going to live in the memories. And I was like, no, that's not how it works. This is only Tom and her thing, Tom and Hattie. But I think you know no that. I think Peter. as a child, I felt strongly that it wouldn't come for both brothers. That it's just, yeah. it's a one-time only thing and it's gone and it's not coming back. Yeah. Isn't it funny, the things that you read as a child and you're like, that's not true. That's, yeah. some no. of this is true and some of it is not true. I was actually, I had this in my notes earlier on of like times as a child when you read Kids Lit where you felt kind of strangely betrayed by the author. Go on, say more. Well, I think that well, for the for in smaller senses, there's moments like that where it's like, mm, no, I think you'll find that it's not the same for both brothers. It's only Tom and Hattie. This is the love story. You're wrong, Philippa, or your editor. And what I also think as well is like, <laughs> it's been an interesting year for people who love Harry Potter. And um, and I've never been one of those, really. I've always, I liked them, I read them. But for me, J, J.K. Rowling broke my heart when she wrote The Chamber of Secrets. And Ginny Weasley was this sort of like pathetic, terrible character who was constantly in peril and doing stupid things and writing to Tom Riddle. And like, to me, it was like, oh, it's a boy book now, is it? You've got the flying car on the front and like snakes. And it's for boys now, is it? And Ginny Weasley, I think whenever... This is the only trigger warning I ever need from my media, which is when a youngest child of a big family is treated badly. (laughs) And that was the day that I didn't... I really stopped having any emotional connection to Harry Potter. And I really haven't had one since. Well, as I care a lot about Harry Potter, being an eldest child who gets to have adventures, I feel very strongly there are lots of things... There are things in Harry Potter, particularly the epilogue, which are just not true. I don't know why she wrote them when they're not true. They're not true. They didn't happen. No. And it's funny, isn't it? That sense of ownership you feel over books. And I think particularly with children's books, where you're really like, that didn't happen. You're wrong. I'll tell you what really happened to these characters who are surely alive somewhere. I'm trying to think, are there any specific instances where I felt the author was wrong? I was very sensitive as a kid to, like, silliness. To what I felt was, like, a silly ending mm. or being pandered to in any way. Yeah, completely. I, I, um, I always hated it as well. When the author addressed you and was like, your parents don't want you reading this or your school teacher may not like this, but blah, blah, blah. And I was, I was like, shut up. <laughs> don't you condescend to know me or my situation. <laughs> Which I don't think I minded being addressed. I think I minded being addressed when it was clear that they did not, in fact, know me. Whenever anyone referred to my mom, I was always like, "Yeah, who are you, Americans? You don't know me or my life or anything to do with me. I've never even been to America. Who are you, people?" Yeah, yeah. I think when I when I think about how I read now, um, by Meg Rosoff, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> another great children's book um, or YA. Um, I never really care if someone's making something up. Like, for example, I don't care if many people have said that David Sedaris invents a lot of his stories. And I couldn't give a shit because he's an incredible writer. He spins a good yarn. I don't really care if his sister actually has an exotic parrot. Um, What affects me much more and what will turn me off a writer much quicker is if I get that sense of like, vanity coming through where they're like constantly trying to present themselves as if um they were the one who acted valiantly which is why I don't really read a lot of memoirs particularly celebrity memoirs anymore because there's always the sense of like well everyone was an asshole except me who saw um you know saw the, the true thing from the beginning and that will turn me off much quicker than any factual inaccuracies would it would be like pe- people who don't see themselves correctly in the situation it makes me much more annoyed I mean yeah that's, that's why David said I don't care if David Sedaris makes stuff up but the thing is and this is something obviously I come back to and circle around a lot all memoirs are fiction of course they are because you will never get an objective view and as someone who writes a lot of memoir I'm very conscious of the fact that it's impossible for me to write the truth. It's impossible for me to say objectively the way something happened or how it happened 
truthfully. And also, we've said a lot this year, and I come back to a lot, is a Stuart Lee quote about a completely made-up yes. story about Richard Herring, where he says, now, that story about Richard Herring was not, not Richard Isn't Herring. true. Who is it about? Richard Hammond. That story about Richard Hammond was not true. But what it tells us about Richard Hammond is true. And I think that's kind of what we're saying about vanity, isn't it? And these children's books, it's like, these are not true. These stories about life are not true, but what they tell us about life is true, which I guess what we've done here is summarise what fiction is. <laughs> yes, that's what Stuart Lee has so neatly done for us with his Richard Hammond anecdote. Um, I'm going to round off the podcast now with some quickfire questions for us to argue about. Love to argue. Love a quickfire. Number one. What is the best Jacqueline Wilson book? We haven't actually talked about her at all, but, you know. I'm afraid the answer is very easy. It's The Suitcase Kid. <gasps> is yours favourite The Suitcase Kid? It's The Suitcase Kid because she has a tiny Sylvanian who has a beautiful tiny house. And I love miniature things, which is why I love Miss Happiness and Miss Flower. And therefore, mm-hmm. it's clearly the best one. Okay, so I my best one is... Ugh, do you know what? It's a tie. I mean, that's not fair. I can't have ties, can I? I mean, obviously, it's the illustrated mum, right? Like, the illustrated mum's the best one. The illustrated mum is the fucking bomb in terms of, like, I think we have to leave the illustrated mum to one side because it is truly her masterpiece. Yeah, I think think you're right. I think it, in terms of, like, dramatic stakes for a children's books and... A book about loss and pain, and it's so beautiful. Honestly, the illustrated mum is one of those books that I... I don't know how to repackage it so that everybody reads it, but they should. It's a wonderful book. But I, I think everybody has read it, right? Like, maybe. I feel like, I feel like Jacqueline Wilson, because she is so hugely commercially successful and so popular with kids, sometimes doesn't get quite the literary recognition that I wish she would. Yeah, and I think what's so incredible about what Jacqueline Wilson does as well is that she uses a very old style to tell very new stories. Like, everything about the illustrated mum, the whole thing about... Like, having this incredibly tattooed mum who's sort of unstable but who loves you and you're living in this council flat and you're living hand-to-mouth and there's these scary boyfriends coming in and out and all this stuff. It's all very, like... 20th late 20th early 21st century you know it's all very modern it's all very now but none of it is told in this kind of like listen kids we live in a hard world and here's my slang there's never any slang there's never any technology and it's always told in this kind of lilting way that old school ones are made it's always like mickey said some rather bad words yeah things that kids don't say like and yet they respond to it and kids have responded to jacqueline wilson overwhelmingly I mean, I think what I mean about The Illustrated Mum is that I feel that it is, in kind of literary terms, something that everybody should read. And I feel that because kids love Jacqueline Wilson so much, there's kind of a sense that that she's a different kind of writing to the more literary kids' books, if you see what I mean. And The Illustrated Mum, I think, is just a genuinely very beautiful, very smart book. You know that bit when they go to the woods? The where? They go to the woods to try and have a picnic and they're making a little houses out of cake. Oh, I don't remember that. All I remember is like, not all I remember, but the big bit I remember is when she brings her friend back to her house and she's really nervous about her mum's going to be like on one and her mum is like so normal it frightens her. Like she's like making beans on toast and all this and wearing an apron and all this kind of thing. Yeah, and Dolphin's main character is just like, I don't know how we're paying for this. And she's yeah. got this like, and the mum's like, don't worry, darling, it's all fine. And she's like, no, but seriously, how are we paying for this? What price is this going to accept? And that's, I think, one thing I mean about the, the, the cleverness of the writing is that that burden of worry mm. shifts so effortlessly onto her at that moment that you're like, this is how she thinks all the time. There's no sense of the parent taking care of her. She's just yeah. like, yeah. oh, do you remember Marigold's birthday card? Where she draws 33 things. And then the mum oh, rips, yeah. and then Marigold rips it up to draw a tattoo on the back. Yeah, a cross because it's her Jesus year because she's thirty three. Is the only reason oh, any of so us know how old Jesus was when he died? It's because of that book. The only reason I know that particularly, yes, exactly. Um, I I do think that like the illustrated mum could get like a cloth bound Virago modern classic cover, and it would sell in droves. 
I just, yeah, um, I mean, in some ways there's a kind of, there's an almost rumour gardenish quality to Jacqueline Wilson. Yes, rumour garden who wrote Miss Happiness and Miss Flower. Miss Happiness and Miss Flower, and also a couple of books about India that I have really felt as kind of deep inspirations for my own book, The Secret Detectives, which is coming out in February, and which are complicated and weird and about this experience of being a child of parents you can't quite trust. Yeah, that's definitely the Jacqueline Wilson experience. Yeah, and like, not that Um, you don't love and not that they don't love you. There is very rarely a parent in Jacqueline Wilson who doesn't love their kids. Yeah, they just love that. Like, yeah, it's... um. I would say, what I was going to say was that The Illustrated Mum, I do think, is her masterpiece. But I would say, like, the, the Jacqueline Wilson of my heart, like, my cosy Jacqueline Wilson, because The Illustrated Mum is quite upsetting, is always The Lottie Project, which is a story about a girl who, like, is quite poor and, like, her she's got a single mum, but she's extremely popular and she just gets really into the Victorians one year. And she's and not she sort broken of uses... in any way. No, she's not broken at all. She's so vibrant. And, you know, and she just ends up making friends with Biscuits. This boy. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah they all boy. call him Biscuits because yeah. he's fat. And it's like, and she's like, well, we know he shouldn't. But also, that's what everyone calls him. So I guess we're calling him that. Yeah. Yeah. She goes back to his house and his mum's like, got cakes in a cake tin. And the heating's always on. And she's like, wow. And also, wasteful. Do you need all this? Do you remember when she makes the cake for the grandparents really? and she misses out the N in anniversary? Yeah, the second end of anniversary and they give her so much crap about it and it's sort of this whole thing about like... Jasmine and she puts it in a little pot. Yeah. And then her her mom just immediately just puts it in the sink and you get the sense as well that her mom comes from this like quite sort of like, you know, upper middle Daily Mail reading Tory sort of live in Maidenhead kind of, kind of house. And... Um, that they've just like they, she she was a teen mother and she wouldn't get rid of her kid and she struck out alone and this is and like she this is somebody who has suffered from like downward mobility and who but who doesn't care it doesn't matter and she loves her kid and it's very it's very old fashioned it's, this the story itself is Victorian um, and the setup itself is Victorian and this is this kid who's just falling in love with the Victorians at the same time. I love the Lottie Project. Um, okay, best role, Dal. I mean. This is a difficult one because obviously it's going solo because you read it when you're eight and you're like, wow, my eyes have been opened to this world of sex. (laughs) This is the sexiest book of all time. They just like, I am obsessed with whatever. If I could be in one publisher's marketing meeting ever, it would be the one for going solo. It's like, we're going to sneak this into every children's library in the UK and Ireland and probably America. And a lot of very ambitious nine-year-olds are going to read it and then grow up with erotic thoughts of Roald Dahl for the rest of their fucking lives. It's a very sexy book. Roald Dahl was a very sexy man. I mean, you know, you and I have long harbored ambitions to... Write a lot of erotic fiction about Roald Dahl one day when we're when we're free of our jobs, but yeah. it's a very sexy book, a very strange and sexy book, like so much of Roald Dahl's adult fiction. So anyway, Going Solo is obviously the best Dahl book because it makes you feel weird when you don't understand why. But what's the? For me, it's like I think it is Danny, the champion of the world, and I also think it's the when I read that book as well. It was the first time I was a. I became extremely aware of parents having secret lives away from you. Not that I became aware of it, but the first time somebody had enunciated to me clearly so that I was like, oh, I know what they're talking about. That thing of like knowing your parents have this life away from you and finding that sort of secret and strange. And it's a bit like how we talked about before about when your mom comes back and she smells like night and when she goes out and you're afraid she's never going to come back. (laughs) And it's like that whole thing of like, don't have your secret life. Um... Sexiest characters in Kid Lit. I think we might have answered it already. I mean, it's always Dickon, isn't it? It's Dickon when you're 12, or when you're, however old you are when you read Secret Garden. And I think now it's Danny's dad. Danny's hot, sexy dad. Danny's hot dad. I would say I've got a weakness for Creston Mancy. Oh, yeah, Creston Mancy with his dressing gown for every day of the year. He's so calm. <laughs> yeah, he is so calm and hot, yeah. He's so calm and he's just like, particularly in Charmed Life when Gwendolyn, who is a witch, read the book, you'll see what I mean. Gwendolyn, Mm -hmm. the witch, who keeps causing havoc and ruining things. And he's just like, I'm just going to fix the things she breaks. And she's just like, I hate you. And then he's like, okay, fine, I'll take away your magic. 
done. Bingo. Sorted. Very hot. It's very hot because it's, it's a thing of like the adult who refuses to punish you kind of thing. It's like very withholding. It's like basically most children's fit fiction, you can, as an adult, when you read it, you can find some kind of erotic undertone should you need to. And that doesn't make you weird. I think it makes you a bit <laughs> weird, but it makes you the good kind of weird. But do we have any um, parting words on Kidlet or 2020 in general? No. I thought there would be something pithy, but there isn't. I'm so tired no. of this year. I think I think I'm just gonna read a lot of Kidlet. I'm gonna go and read all Diana Wynne Jones. I am so sad not to be anywhere where I have you know that selection of books you only get on parents' bookcases of things that were came out in mm-hmm. nineteen eighty eight and Jeffrey Archer's Cain and Abel. Yeah. Two to four copies in every house. <laughs> Someday someone's gonna pick Cain and Abel. And I'm going to be really happy when they do. It won't be me. Um, I think... No, I just think hang in there. Maybe one day it will be all right again. Maybe one day we can record in person again. That'll be fun. <laughs> Maybe I'll stop hang wrestling there, with this recording recording thing. Maybe I've not recorded it. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Okay. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Love you. Bye. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen Hedonahu. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineOdonahu at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.